Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes The Virgin Birth Was Impossible, and that's the point, Understanding the Trinity, What Does It Mean to Be the Christ, What Is the Lord's Supper, and When to Withhold the Gospel. Enjoy. Now, as we all know, the only thing standing between a truly rational atheist and belief in the Bible is the appearance of God in a miraculous form. If only, they say, God would appear to me and perform a miracle right before my very eyes, then I would certainly be convinced. Well, <laughs> that's not the first time that's been said. Let's get into it. If only God would do something impossible, then I would certainly concede. Now, this isn't something that's just come up recently. This has been the mantra of the unbeliever for a very long time. Take, for example, the Pharisees from the New Testament. Now, if you recall, the Pharisees in the New Testament, they followed Jesus around regularly, and Jesus is doing miracles left and right. In fact, not a few of these miracles were instigated specifically by these Pharisees. They were saying, like, here's this dude who's got all these things wrong with him. Uh, by the way, it's the Sabbath. Are you going to heal him or not? And they would try to do these things to trick Jesus, or they would demand signs. It says countless times in the Bible that, that they were after signs. They would demand signs, and, and sometimes Jesus would he would heal a person. He would do a miracle in front of the Pharisees. And uh, they were all converted, right? <laughs> Not so much. Actually, what would happen is the Pharisees, they would observe these miracles happening right in front of them. And in spite of them specifically, later on, they would say, you know, Jesus, do a sign for us. That didn't convince them when they saw the signs. They, they weren't happy with all the signs and the miracles that they already had. They, they would continue to ask for more signs. They would continue to make up excuses for their unbelief. Now, of course, the truth is that their unbelief is a result of their stubborn, hard hearts, a rejection of the Holy Spirit. See Acts 7.51. But they would ask for signs to justify, well, certainly we would believe that this is the Christ if only he would give us a sign. Eventually, Jesus says, you know what? The only sign you're going to get now, like after all these signs that I keep doing, all these miracles that I keep doing, these public things, you're going to get the sign of Jonah. You're going to get that just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, so too the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. And being in the tomb, and then Easter Sunday, right? So they're asking for these signs over and over and over again. And despite seeing all these signs, they're still not convinced. This is a pattern with people. Now you could show them something right to their face and they could go home and say, well, you know what? Maybe I dreamt that. Maybe I remembered it wrong. Maybe there were some smoke and mirrors. Maybe there's all, all kinds of excuses. You can make an excuse for anything that you see, anything you observe or test. So to say, I would be convinced if a miracle happened in front of me, mm, I have doubts. <laughs> I have doubts that the miracle, the one that, hasn't happened yet, that's going to be the one that really convinces you. Now, there was a miracle that happened. This was an important miracle. We're going to go back to the Old Testament here for this one. I Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz. King Ahaz, he is, a, he is a, the king of Judah at the time. Now, King Ahaz is not known for his bravery. Uh, in fact, the Bible specifically says this about him in, uh, in, in chapter 7 of Isaiah. It says, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's, <laughs> that's who you want as your king, this dude shaking like a tree in the wind. Him and all of his people, you know, because if a leader tends to lose courage, then the followers will as well. So I hold him responsible for that. But then again, you know, everybody has their own sin. Anyways, moving on. So Isaiah comes, God tells Isaiah, he says, go to, go, go to Ahaz, deliver this message. And Isaiah goes to Ahaz and basically promises a sign. He promises a miracle. Um, 
this is what the text says. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This is, this is through Isaiah. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put my Lord to the test. Oh, what a pious king this Ahaz is. He's not going to put God to the test. After all, we know you shall not test the Lord your God, right? Well, here's the thing. He's not going out and trying to pick a fight with God saying, you know what, God, I don't believe you're, you're real. Why don't you give me a sign? What's happening is God is promising him a sign through a, bleh, through Isaiah. Ahaz is being promised a sign. And God says, guess what? I'm going to give you a sign. And you get to pick what it is. You get to pick anything. As high as the heavens or as low as Sheol, the place of the dead. Pick a sign. Now, Ahaz could have said, I let me walk on water like Peter did, or, you know, turn the, stop the sun in the sky or, 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 or turn the river into blood or any of these signs. He could have said, you know, give me the power of flight and, and shoot fire from my fingertips or so. He could have picked anything, but he didn't. Instead, he cringed back. He pulled back and shook like a tree and said, oh no, I'm not going to test the Lord my God. What a wimp. What a wimp. He's, God is offering him a sign. He's saying, pick anything you want, anything you want. And Ahaz is just like, mm, I don't know, man. I can't really think of anything. Why don't I? I'm not going to test God. Dude, just listen. God is, he's offering you a sign. He's not, uh, it's not, okay, whatever. Anyways, Isaiah picks up on this and Isaiah's frustration is palpable. I love, this is, this is one of my favorite lines of the Bible, what Isaiah tells the King Ahaz here. Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So you're getting on my nerves. And if that's not bad enough, you're going you're gonna to be annoying to God too? Now, by all rights, Isaiah, I mean, if he wasn't directed by God, God could have walked away and said, you know what, this guy, he's not worth my, he's not worth my trouble. I'm offering him something. I'm offering him something good. And he's cringing back. And like, no, I don't, I don't know. I don't want it. I don't know what to do. God could have walked away and said, you know what? I'm going to make some more people out of mud and, um, and I'm going to make them faithful unlike you. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, in the faithlessness of King Ahaz and his people, God remains faithful. God picks picks the sign at that point. No longer does he rely on Ahaz to pick the sign. Instead, God picks the perfect sign. And this is what the promise is. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, Emmanuel means God with us. The problem with this verse is not in the verse itself, but in the interpretation that some people have of it. They look at the word virgin. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they want to intentionally translate this. This is unbelievers. They want to intentionally translate this, this word virgin to mean maiden, a young woman, right? A little bit of a problem with that. So they want to take, get rid of the virgin birth. And this is how they do it. They, they, they translate the word, they translate the word differently. Now, even granted that you translate this word instead of to virgin, to, to maiden. Think about the implications of this. God says that he's going to give a sign. He asks King Ahaz, as high as heaven or as low as Sheol, what do you want for your sign? A grand sign. Ahaz doesn't pick one. God picks one. Presumably a grand sign, something miraculous, something impossible. Now, if God had chosen an impossible sign, and that sign was, a young woman will give birth. Ooh, that never happens. In the history of the world, never has a young woman given birth before. What a sign. You can definitely tell this apart from all the other times that young women give birth. It doesn't make sense if you translate this to young woman. This is a sign which is distinct. It's 
it stands out. If you've got a sign in a field, the sign doesn't look like all the blades of grass. It is something that sends a message and stands apart from everything around it. It is not translated to young maiden. This is the prophecy of the virgin birth. Duh. Moving forward. This virgin birth is impossible. Now, there's different times in the Bible where barren women are promised children. And a lot of times these women are barren because of old age or medical infirmity or, you know, whatever. There's reasons why these women can't, can't give birth. They have... Something is wrong with the facilities, the biology. God opens and closes the womb. All children come from God. For one reason or another, these women have not had children, despite having husbands. Now, this virgin giving birth is distinct from that. Even in the case of somebody who is elderly, an elderly woman, who she, she's got a husband, and they're active. They know each other. They know each other in the sense that Adam knew Eve and conceived and bore, bore a son. But the problem is that she's not conceiving or the, you know, the, the conceived child is not implanted or whatever. Whatever medical condition, however God closed that womb, this woman is not giving birth. But the components for the child, the necessary ingredients to bake the cake, to put that bun in the oven, if you will, are there. She has a husband. Her womb while barren, God still works to create children, sometimes in otherwise barren wombs. Again, these are often miraculous things or things of healing. Promises. Now, in the case of a virgin birth, in the case of a virgin birth, it's not that it is rare. It's not that it is biologically difficult. It's not that there is a medical condition that makes implantation difficult or impossible. It is not an elder. In the case of a virgin birth, the necessary ingredients to create a baby are not present. Every single human conception, with one exception, has been a result of a man and a woman. Every single one. Throughout all history, there has always been a man and a woman involved, except for one case the case of the virgin birth. In the case of a virgin birth, this, this womb is so devoid of life, even more so than the elderly, than the infirm, than the others who cannot give birth. The womb of the virgin is so devoid of life, it may as well be a place of death. This womb may as well be a tomb. Now, it's Christmas Eve, and as we keep this in mind, this place of death, this tomb, we know that life never rises from a tomb, does it? It's Holy Trinity Sunday, my dudes, and you know what that means. It means you get to say the Athanasian Creed in church. It also possibly means that your pastor gets to preach on John 3.16. What a wonderful Sunday. But let's talk about the Trinity. Let's talk about a few ways that a, people have tried to explain it and understand it in the past that have led to a bit more confusion than clarity. Let's get into it. All right, so what's the deal with this Trinity thing? What does Trinity mean? Where do we get it? Why does it matter? Now, Trinity just means three, right? The idea of the Trinity is the three in one, the Trinity in unity, the unity in Trinity, as the Athanasian Creed confesses. In fact, if you want a, a, a good, concise uh, explanation of the Trinity, look up the Athanasian, Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed. It's a bit longer than the other creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And hopefully you were able to confess this creed in church today. But if you read it, it gives you a lot of details about what the Trinity is. It says things like, there are not three gods, there's one God. There's not three uncreated, although God is uncreated. And, you know, there's not three immortal. It's God is, God is one. 
Like Deuteronomy says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But at the same time, there are three persons, there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, we've got plenty of examples of the Trinity. The word Trinity is never used throughout the entire Bible, but it's a word that we've used, it's a word that means three, a word that we've used to describe this particular characteristic of God, that God is Trinitarian or triune. Now, this means that when you have the baptism of Jesus, for example, you have the Son, who is God, Jesus is God, in the water being baptized by John the baptizer. You have the Holy Spirit, who is God, descending like a dove on Jesus, and you have the Father, who is God, speaking out of heaven. You know, this is my Son, whom I, whom I love, in him I am well pleased. So you have all three persons of the Trinity. And the difficulty with explaining the Trinity is that we don't really have anything to compare the Trinity to. We don't really have, so, for example, if I was going to explain a, let's say, I was going to explain a truck to you. I would say, all right, do you know what a car is? All right, so imagine a car, but it's got a longer compartment in the back to carry things and to haul things. And I could describe to you what a truck was by, by using your knowledge of a car, right? In the case of the Trinity, God is unique. We don't really have anything to compare God to. So a lot of times people have made explanations and analogies that have, they've done more harm than good. They don't actually explain the triune nature of God. I'll give you a couple of examples. God is like an apple. They'd say that God has, a, well, they'll say that an apple has skin, it has the flesh, the part that you eat, and it has the seeds. And God is like that. Uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, they'll say God is like a shamrock. Uh, it's got three leaves, but they're all connected. Or they'll say God is like an egg, an egg is a shell, an egg has the white part, and the egg has the yolk. Right? The problem is that all of these describe things that are partial. They're divided into parts. This is a heresy we call partialism. There's another word for it. I don't know, it's Sabellianism or something. I don't remember what it's called. But partialism. This means taking taking the, the Trinity and then saying, okay, I'm going to divide the Trinity into three parts. You've got uh, you've got the Father is part of God, and the Son is part of God, and the Holy Spirit is part of God. You see, you see how that doesn't work? Because Jesus is not part of God, right? The Father is not part of God. The Father is God. Jesus is God, yet there's one God. The Holy Spirit is God, yet there's one God. So all of these, all of these examples where you have three different parts to a whole thing, um, that's partialism. That's partialism, Patrick. That's, all, that's called partialism. That's incorrect. That's, that's not a good analogy. Um, so another, another way people have tried to describe the, um, the Trinity is what's well, a heresy called modalism. And just like partialism is about dividing God into parts, modalism is about dividing God into modes or states. And this heresy would go something like this. God is like water. Water has three states. It has liquid, vapor, and ice. Just like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God appears in different states. But then the problem with this is that this denies that God appears at the same time simultaneously as these different as these different things. So for example, you've got the baptism, you've got God is there, all three persons of God are there present at the same time. God doesn't the Father doesn't turn into the Son, the Son doesn't turn into the Spirit, and the Spirit doesn't turn into the Father. They're all present. They communicate. We know that the Father talks to, to the Son and talks about the Son. We know that the Son prays to the Father. We know that, you know, there, there, there's communication with the Holy Spirit. So modalism, saying that God is actually three different modes, also doesn't work. It's not a good analogy. There's all kinds of analogies that you can find, and each of them falls short or confesses something untrue uh, in one way or another. Um, but the difficulty is, we don't, we don't really fully understand the Trinity. We confess what the Trinity is because that's what God tells us. We know that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we know that there's only one God. And the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but there's, there's only one God. Not three gods, but one God. Again, read through the Athanasian Creed, because it tells you what we confess, but it doesn't explain how it's possible. Because again, God is a unique being. We don't have anything to compare God to and say, well, God is like this other thing, because God isn't like that other thing. Some things are like God in some ways, but God is unique, right? So the fact that we cannot fully explain the Trinity is... It's kind, of, it's kind of to be expected. Um, but why does the Trinity matter? If you're sitting in the pews, 
and you listen to the pastor rattle on about the Trinity, and you're like, oh, we have to go through this Athanasian Creed. It's so long, and I want to sit down. Uh, I don't like the Athanasian Creed. Some people don't like the Athanasian Creed. I don't know what's wrong with them. Athanasian Creed's great. Um, if you're sitting in the pews and you're wondering, well, what does the Trinity have to do with me? Why should I care about the Trinity? Why should I have to explain the details of the Trinity? Well, you have to, to fully appreciate what God's done for you. You have to understand who God is. Let's take, for example, the crucifixion. At the crucifixion, you have, you have the Father. Look at, look at John 3.16. Well, look at John 3 and the entire conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, you have the Father sends the Son to save the world. The Holy Spirit grants faith in our hearts so we can believe, we can turn and look to the one who's lifted up, who's raised up. Um, uh, Jesus compares, compares his crucifixion to, um, to the account, I think it's Numbers 20, I, I don't recall, where the Israelites are, are beating the Israelites and uh, they get bitten by a bunch of snakes because God sends snakes to, to, to punish, to discipline them, really. Uh, and then they cry out to God for mercy, and God gives them mercy in the form of a, of a bronze serpent lifted up on a pole. And anyone who looks at the pole will be, will be freed from the curse of the venom. Likewise, anyone who lift, looks at the, uh, at, the God, at the God-man Jesus who is lifted up on the cross will be freed from the venom of sin and death. Right. So if you understand what the Trinity is, you understand that each, each person is playing a part here. That the Father loves the world in this way that he would send his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, the Holy Spirit remembers, the one who creates faith and grows the faith, shall have eternal life. The Father sends the Son, the Spirit causes you to believe. The understanding of the Trinity helps you understand what each, each person in the Trinity, what, what some of the things that they've done are. So you can appreciate and praise God all the more for, for the wonderful things that he's done for you because you understand just a little bit more about him. And if you don't understand the Trinity perfectly, you, you never will, not until you get to heaven at least, and then even still maybe you won't fully understand, uh, but at least you'll be able to have God explain it to you. Um, but it's, Trinity Sunday is, is, is a beautiful Sunday, and it's important for Christians to understand the Trinity. Because when Christians don't understand the Trinity, this is when they fall into error. This is when you have things like Mormonism, which confesses that Jesus is a God, but not the God not the Trinitarian God. We have Judaism, which confesses that, the, that God is one, but certainly there are not three persons. And certainly Jesus is not God, unless you're an Ebionite and you believe that Jesus was adopted, but he was a human, but he was adopted and became God. That's this whole thing. Or, or you get something like Islam, where they, don't, where they believe that Jesus is a Muslim prophet and that the Christians worship multiple gods and calls them, uh, Muhammad calls them polytheists because he believes that Christians worship multiple gods. You can avoid these errors by just understanding, just appreciating what we do know about the Trinity. We understand what the Father does, what the Son does, what the Holy Spirit does, what they all do. That they're all persons, that they're all God, that there's only one God. And that it's confusing, and that's okay. Well, I hope that gave you some, some things to think about on this Holy Trinity Sunday. Take care, and I'm going to you. A lot of people, when they hear the name Jesus Christ, assume that Jesus is the first name and Christ is the last name. That's not really true. Christ, in fact, isn't a name at all, but rather it's a title. The Christ. Perhaps more accurately, it would be pronounced Jesus the Christ, or the Christ, comma, Jesus. But what does it mean to be the Christ? Well, let's get into it. Corinthians, Paul writes an introduction, you know, greeting the Corinthians. And in this section, he has packed the word Christ nine times into this small section of text. Christ, the title of the Christ, is very important. And he wants to make sure that these Christians, these people who are supposed to be Christians in the Church of Corinth, understand the centrality of Christ and the, the title of the Christ to the belief of, you know, the beliefs about Jesus. So, the word Christ, Christ is actually a Greek word, Christos, and it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, 
probably pronounced that wrong. I'm sure you'll tell me. Christ, the Messiah. Now, the confession that somebody is the Christ or the Messiah, namely Jesus, is important because it's a confession that he's the one who fulfills all of these promises of the Old Testament, all of these prophecies about who the Messiah would be, what he would do. And the New Testament, obviously, you know, calling him the Messiah, the Christ, means that what he is doing is that, you know, fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the promise that he will crush the head of the serpent. This is why Peter's confession is so important. When Jesus asked the disciples, you know, who do men say I am? Oh, some say that you're Elijah or John the Baptist or yada yada, you know, whatever. You're, you're a prophet. You're a good guy. You're a good teacher, right? But who do you say that I am? And then Peter responds, I believe on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ. This is tying Jesus back to all the prophecies. This is saying that Jesus, you are the one who's going to save everybody from their sins. You're the one promised in Genesis and all through the Old Testament. The Christ. This is an important confession. This is why we're called Christians. Because it's important to consider we're not just Jesusans like the Mohammedans, the guys who follow Muhammad. We're not just the followers of some teacher named Jesus, but the Christ. Confessing this with our name Christian, the Christ is the the. Well, let me just define it first. The Christ, the Messiah, means the anointed one, the chosen one, the Savior. Now, calling yourself a Christian means that you believe that Jesus, you know, the center of your religion, is that Savior, is the one who died on the cross for your sins. If you ask maybe a charitable Jew or Muslim who they think, what do they think about Jesus? They'll say, oh, he was a good prophet, he was a good teacher, if they're being charitable. But they absolutely will not say that he was the Messiah. He was the one who, who died for the sins of the world. In fact, they may use the term Christ or Messiah as though it was just, you know, a throwaway statement. You know, his last name. His name is, you know, Jesus, last name Christ. But that's not true at all. They don't confess that he is the Messiah, the Savior. This is what distinguishes Christians from, from anyone else. Why Christians alone can truly grasp the meaning of Christ, calling Jesus the Christ. And this is important, that Jesus is the Christ. Because if Jesus was just some guy, then we'd still be waiting. We'd still be waiting on a Messiah to come. This is what many of the modern-day Jews do. They reject Jesus as the one who was, who was to come to show up and save them from their sins. Instead, they look forward in vain, forever, hoping for someone who's already, <laughs> who's already showed up on earth and, and taken care of the sins of the world. This is why Paul confesses Christ nine times in the introduction to 1 Corinthians. This is why the title is Christian, follower of the Christ. This is, this is why we regularly pair the title of the Christ with Jesus. Because every time we do this, we are saying that Jesus is the one who died for our sins. Jesus is the one who saved the world. Jesus is the one who rose again on the third day and guaranteed eternal life to all of his followers, all of his believers, all of his Christians. So, if the confession of the Christhood of Jesus isn't the center, isn't the center of your of your religious confession than it should be. It should be. Because it doesn't matter if there's just some Jesus dude. What does matter is if, this, if Jesus was the Savior. Anyways, just something to think about when you think about the, I was going to say the name, the title, the Christ. And every time you hear the word Christian or Jesus Christ, you can now consider what exactly it means to be the Christ. And rejoice in that, because it's true. Well, I hope you have a wonderful Sunday, a wonderful week. Take care. It's Monday, Thursday, and the readings tonight are about the Lord's Supper. Why do we talk about the Lord's Supper? Why do we make such a big deal about the Lord's Supper anyways? After all, isn't this just a meal of remembrance? Isn't this just a symbol for us to remember the things that Christ did? Let's get into it.
So the Lutheran Church treats the Lord's Supper in a very similar manner to the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic. Now there are other denominations that don't regard the Lord's Supper as the same thing. But the Lutheran Church says that when Christ says, this is my body and this is my blood, take and eat, take and drink, what he means is, this is my body and this is my blood. As Luther would say, hoc est corpus meum. Now the Roman Catholics believe in something called transubstantiation. They believe that the bread and wine turn into, in some regard, uh, they turn into the body and blood of Christ. So what's on the altar that's being consumed is not, it's not completely the bread, it's not completely the wine in the same way it was before. There's a difference between, I believe it's between the, uh, between the accident and the essence of something. So the, uh, the breadness of the bread converts, converts to the body, whatever. In any case, it's similar, but it's not the same as, as the Lutherans. And the Eastern Orthodox believe kind of a similar thing as well. The Lutherans believe that the body and blood of Christ is present in a way we can't understand, in, with, and under, that's kind of a cheat phrase that we use, in, with, and under, the bread and the wine. So the body and blood, that's consumed. The bread and the wine don't cease to be bread and wine in any way. They don't, they don't transubstantiate, their substance isn't changed from the substance of bread to the substance of body. It's the bread's there and the body's there because, you know, in the Bible it says, you know, eat this bread and drink this cup, drink this wine. So um, apparently there's, it's still bread, it's still wine somehow, and it's, it's God's body and it's God's blood somehow. So God doesn't explain it to us. We say, okay, well, I don't know why, but we'll listen to you, God. Well, because we have this view of it and we don't have a view of the, of the, of the body and the blood, we don't have a view where it's just a symbol, all of a sudden we have the body and blood of God on our altar. We have the body and blood of Christ, the Savior on our altar. And this affects how we behave, how we treat it. This is why you'll go to churches, and sometimes people call them high churches, but really it's just how church should be. Uh, you go to churches and they'll have chalices, they'll have ornate cups that'll contain this wine and this bread, uh, or this body and this blood. Um, and they have these ornate things that, you know, they're gold or silver or brass or something like that. And the reason for this, you find this, uh, this is the Christian's way of trying to treat with reverence these gifts of God, these gifts that, that forgive sins and, and feed faith and do all these other wonderful things. And these specific things, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says specifically, you have to have a gold-encrusted chalice, right? You have to have a jewel, you know, a jewel-encrusted uh, ciborum or anything like that. But the Bible does tell us what the body and blood is. It says that this is Christ's body. This is Christ's blood. And it says, you know, take this and, uh, you know, and participate in the new covenant. Participate in the death of Christ and in the blessings, in the blessings that Christ won on the cross. God wins these blessings on the cross and then delivers them to you in the Lord's Supper. So you read something like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and it gives an even more detailed explanation. Now the Corinthian church, they are troublemakers. They regularly caused trouble and got into all kinds of horrible stuff, right? So Paul writes to them a bunch of times. I think we've got two of his letters, but somehow I think the scholars believe that there were at least four letters that were written to the Corinthians. They were causing trouble a lot, and Paul had to visit them and, and discipline them regularly. And they were misbehaving regarding the Lord's Supper. They had people who were just pigging out. They were just eating feasts, and other people were going hungry, and some people were getting drunk. And he says, what you guys are doing, this is not what Christ instituted. This is not what he commanded you to do. This is not you getting the benefits of the Lord's Supper. And in fact, Paul warns that uh, this is why you know, you guys are not treating the Lord's Supper right. This is why many of you are getting sick and even dying. So this is something very serious. I mean, the ancient church referred to the Lord's Supper as the medicine of immortality. But if you take medicine when you're not supposed to, or in a way that you're not supposed to, you can get very sick and die. So the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of God, is something that we need to take and treat with very high regard and very, you know, very carefully, very respectfully. Now, this does not necessarily mean that you should parade around and use it as a, uh, uh, use it as a good luck charm or uh, parade around with the body. God specifically says you're supposed to take, eat, take, drink. This is what he gives you the medicine to do. Not to, not to make magic charms out of, not to, you know, to hide under your tongue, then you take it out when you're at home and, you know, you put it on a shelf. Because that was something that people used to do, is they used to make lucky charms out of, out of, you know, out of the host. 
But it's this, it's this warning where it's this holy thing that we have to treat with reverence. And by treating with reverence, we treat it the way that God intended us to treat it, to take and to eat. Um, and one of the things in particular Paul talks about, he talks about these people who get sick. He says that they receive, uh, they receive the body and blood in an unworthy manner. He says to examine yourself uh, so you do not receive it in an unworthy manner. Well, every Christian knows or should know that they are unworthy of the gifts of God, at least in terms of their sin. They are unworthy. But this isn't what he's talking about. Sinners should absolutely come to the altar. But the thing is, when you come to the altar, you should be repentant of your sin. You shouldn't be living in sin, unrepentant, saying, I would rather sin than be forgiven and then come to the altar. If that's what you're going to do, do not take the Lord's Supper. You could be hurting yourself. You could end up killing yourself that way. If, if, if you're unreconciled to one of your brothers or your sisters and you're talking with them and you refuse to reconcile with them, you refuse to forgive them, again, do not come to the altar because this medicine needs to be taken in the right way and you could hurt your Yourself. Likewise, if you do not discern the body, this is what he says, those who fail to discern the body, uh, who discern they're guilty of the body and the blood of, of, of Christ, those who fail to discern what it is that they're receiving, if they're saying, oh, this is just a symbol, this isn't actually God's body, this isn't actually God's blood. If you do not believe that you're receiving the body and blood of Christ at the altar, do not go to the Lord's Supper. You are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, and you may be guilty concerning God's body and blood. So it's this balance that these Christians have to have where there is something, it's a powerful medicine. It actually does something. The medicine of immortality, I love that phrase. But medicine, as it's life-giving, as it, as it feeds your faith and forgives your sins and puts you in physical contact with God himself, as it does these things, it's also something that can be very dangerous if misused. So, Christians have to understand that there is a warning and a promise with this body and blood. The warning, do not take it in an unworthy manner. Examine yourself. This is why we don't, in the Lutheran Church, we don't give communion to, to very young children, to infants and, and such, because we do not think that they're capable of examining themselves. Examine yourself first. Examine yourself rightly, as 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says. Examine yourself and judge yourself appropriately uh, before you come to the Lord's table. And if you do that first and you properly discern the body and blood of Christ, this is the body and blood of Christ, and you say, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness, and dear Lord, please forgive me for my sins, then please come to the altar. And, you know, obviously talk with the pastor first. Make sure, don't just walk up to a, go walk into a random church and try to go to the altar. Um, that would be very, very disrespectful of the, uh, of the practices of that church. But, but once you've gotten permission from the pastor, the priest, um, you should go to the altar every chance you get. You should say, you know, God, forgive me for my sins. I deliver this forgiveness to me, you know, in, in this body and blood. Um, and that's what that is. That's, you know, the body and blood is the physical manifestation of the gospel delivered to you. This is this blessing given to you. It's dangerous if you, if you abuse it, but it's one of the most precious things you can ever receive if you receive it appropriately. So, if you're a Christian and you repent of your sins and you truly believe in the real body and the real blood of Christ on the altar, then go, go enjoy, not enjoy, in joy, in, in joy and in, in rejoicing, go to the altar and receive that body and blood of Christ because it's a gift given for you. That's what your priest says. He says, given for you, this body broken for you, blood for you. Take it for the forgiveness of your sins. And once you take it, go in peace afterwards. Your sins are forgiven. That's what I tell, that's what I tell the members of my congregation when they come to receive the body and blood. After, after they've received it, after each person has received the body and blood, I say, and now the very body and very blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you in body and soul into life everlasting. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. And they are. It's this beautiful, wonderful thing. The medicine of immortality. When taken rightly, when taken, when discerning the body and blood of Christ, when taken with repentance for sins and faith in God, is, is one of the greatest gifts we could ever receive. It's the gospel of Christ. It's what he won on the cross, delivered to you, to you in a way you can feel and touch. Go to the Lord's Supper, but do it right now. It's getting dark now. God bless. 
The Bible can be divided up in multiple ways. For example, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The, the deeds of Jesus and the sayings of Jesus, like the black text and the red text. The law and the gospel. His last distinction is one that the Lutherans in particular seem to like. Some of these distinctions can be found directly in the text, while others of them are implied by the text. It just so happens that Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the reading for today, contains that distinction of law and gospel. Though maybe not in so many words. What do I mean? So Paul doesn't use the word, the law and the gospel. He doesn't use the phrase, the law and the gospel. Lutherans love that. Law and the gospel. C.F.W. Walther's The Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel. You, know, you can actually find that book online for free if you search for it. PDF, an older version of it. It's still very good. What is this distinction, the law and the gospel? How is it scripture? We know the Old Testament, all the books written up to Malachi, Malachi, <laughs> the books written up to Malachi, and, of course, if you're Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, there are a few books that come after that. But it's the books from Genesis to Malachi, for the most part. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament begins the book of Matthew and goes all the way to the Apocalypse of St. John, also known as Revelation. Now, the Old Testament and the New Testament are both parts of the, 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 the whole Bible. They're parts of the same scripture. But we distinguish between them based on when they were written and who wrote them, etc. There are other distinctions in the Bible, such as what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And the law and the gospel. This is a distinction that I think the text from Corinthians focuses on today. Now Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he's explaining these different covenants. The covenant is a contract. Only unlike a contract which is written, a covenant is cut. You cut a covenant. There's usually death involved in breaking a contract. Where, or breaking a covenant, whereas if you're going to break a contract, you know, maybe you just pay a small fee or something like that. But with a covenant, death is involved. Unless the contract is fulfilled. Unless the covenant is fulfilled. Now what Paul is doing is he's contrasting the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, so I think the Ten Commandments, with the New Covenant. This is the New Testament in my blood. This is the New Covenant in my blood. This is the covenant that we, currently, present-day Christians, all live under. Now, Paul refers to the Old Covenant, the law. He refers to it as something written in stone. He refers to it as the letter. The letter which leads to death. The covenant of the letter which leads to death. And he contrasts this with the covenant of the Spirit which leads to life. The covenant of the letter, he goes on to explain, is is exemplified with that Charlton Heston moment of Moses standing on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, the Ten Sayings, the Decalogue, receiving the Ten Words from God, carved into stone tablets. And this leads to death, Paul says, and the reason this leads to death is because the covenant is as such that you have to follow these Ten Commandments perfectly, or you die, or you, you go to hell. Now, the problem is that nobody's followed these perfectly, with the exception of Jesus. Nobody, no human on earth, had followed these perfectly. So, ultimately, this could only lead to death. Ultimately, the end of this covenant, the end of this covenant of the letter, could only lead to death. This was the law. Law. Which was, you must follow this, and these are the consequences. It sounds pretty negative. It's not bad, per se. It's not evil. But it's not very comforting, really. And Paul contrasts this, this old covenant, this, this law, he contrasts this with the gospel, the covenant of the Spirit. This is the new covenant in Christ. This is Jesus died on the cross for your sins. John 3.16, that anyone who believes in him will not die but have eternal life. This is the new covenant that the Lutherans and others refer to as the gospel, the good news. That's what the word gospel means. 
Now, now that you've been given this new covenant, why would you want the old one? The new one is better in every way. He talks about how the old one, there was glory in the old one. When Moses talked to God, he actually absorbed so much of the glory of God, speaking face to face, that his face shone like a like a light bulb, like a star. Right? His face was physically glowing because of the glory of God. He had to wear a veil over his face because his face was shining from being in the presence of a, of a holy God. If this old covenant, which can only lead to damnation, which can only lead to death, has glory. How much more glory does this new covenant have, which leads to the salvation of mankind, in which rather than you following the laws perfectly, which you can't do, God followed the law on your behalf and died in your place to pay your debt, and you're saved. How much more wonderful is this new, this new glory, gloriful covenant, this new covenant, the covenant of the Spirit, the gospel, now he contrasts these things. He goes back and forth between the covenant, of the, the covenant and the letter, the covenant of the spirit, the law and the gospel. Now, why do Lutherans harp on this distinction of law and gospel? Why does it matter? You can look at different places in the Bible. You can read different verses, and you can say, "Hmm, this verse was law. Hmm, that verse was gospel." For example, here's an example of a law verse: "Thou shalt not murder." That's from the Decalogue. That's law. Do not do this thing. That's the law. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's gospel. That's good news. That's not follow this thing or else. That's this is what was done for you, a gift for you, gospel good news for you. Law shows us our sin. Gospel shows us our Savior. What about something like Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's both. The wages of sin is death. Yes, this is true. This is absolutely true. This does not stop being true. The wages of sin is death. This is law. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, before being a Christian, before being saved, you were under under the judgment of the law. You would be damned. You did not fulfill the law. But Christ died on the cross for you and paid your debt for you. So you are saved. The gospel. The law leads into the gospel, but it is necessary that it happens in that order. This distinction between law and gospel, again, it's not just a fun distinction you can make. I mean, it could very much be fun for you to, to go through the Bible and say, hmm, is this first law or is this first gospel? And it's a good way to look at the text when you're reading the text. It really makes you think about, is God promising something to me in this word or is God commanding something to me in this word? But the application of the law versus the gospel is very important because not everybody needs to hear the gospel. Not everybody hears, needs to hear the law, at least not in this moment. I gave an example of you park your car by the curb and go inside a grocery store to pick up some pick up some groceries, some milk and eggs, whatever. And some weirdo in the grocery store comes up to you and says, Hey man, I paid your fine for you. I can pay your fine. You're like, okay, no thanks. Bye. You don't, why would you, you don't have a fine. Why Why would you, this crazy person is talking about a fine. You don't have a fine. Why would you want what he's selling? Then you walk outside and lo and behold, what is that on your windshield? But a ticket. A parking ticket you parked in front of a fire hydrant. Bummer, dude. And with a parking ticket comes a fine. How much more wonderful would it have been if you knew that you had incurred a fine before someone offered to pay it for you? How much more sense would it make? Another example I use is like an illness. You're at a doctor's office and the doctor says, Here, take these pills hands you a jar of pills, and you know, these big old horse pills, right? He's like, take three of them a day every four hours, you know, take three of them every four hours with, with, with water or whatever, something like that. Big old horse pills, like, hard to swallow pills or whatever. I just walked in here. I don't, I don't need any pills. I'm not sick. Why would you give me this? 
But imagine if first the doctor had said to you, you are dying of a disease, and the only cure for that disease is in this bottle, these pills. Take them. Receive them. Be healed. How much more wonderful that would be to receive that good news, that salvation from death, once you realize you need it first. That's a distinction between law and gospel. Sometimes people need to be reminded of why they need a Savior. Somebody who denies their Savior. Somebody who says, well, I'm a good person. I don't have that much sin. I don't need a Savior. I don't have an illness. I don't have a parking ticket. Why would I want salvation from something I'm not afflicted by? They need to be told again and again, reminded with love, but firmness, you are in transgression of the law. The road you are on leads to death. Here is your salvation. It's free. Receive it. But first, you must recognize that you need it. Converse. You have somebody who's crushed by sin. The guilt of their sin. Woe is me, a terrible sinner. I have done, I have sinned against God and only against you. This is somebody who knows what they've done wrong. They know the wages of sin is death. They know that they cannot follow the Ten Commandments. They are desperate for help. You don't give them more law. They know They know that they have the law, you know, looming over them. Somebody who's holding the parking ticket in their hand, you don't walk up to them and say, Hey, buddy, you know, you got a parking ticket. Yeah, no, duh, he's holding it. Somebody who's got a, a diagnosis that they got from the doctor, cancer, you have cancer. You're holding that piece of paper in your hand. And some some chucklehead comes up to you. Hey, did you know you have cancer? Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Now what am I going to do about it, huh? These people need the gospel. These people need comfort. They need the solution. They need that 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 savior who will pay their fine. That need that, that miracle drug which will cure them of their illness that leads to death. Law and gospel. Dividing law and gospel. Knowing what to give to a person what a person needs, what you need. A Christian will bounce back and forth between law and gospel, like a ship floating back and forth between two piers. When you get to the law, you realize your sin and you realize the impending death that you have. And you desperately crave a Savior. So return to the cross of Christ. And every once in a while, maybe you'll have to bounce back over, you'll float back over in sin, you'll have to be reminded of your sin of your need for a savior. But the harbor of the Christian, the place where the Christian lives, is in this new covenant, this covenant of the spirit, this new life, this gospel. So Christian, you have sinned, but Christ has died for your sin. That's where you find comfort. We have a wonderful